Sixers Beat is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts. And because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. Sixers return to the Wells Fargo Center on Wednesday to take on a Sacramento Kings, who after a tough start to the season have now won seven of their last 10 games. With GameTime, you can get in the building with tickets as low as $33. GameTime makes it easy with panoramic seat view photos so you can make an informed decision. And you can check out with just two taps, which is less effort than it took to play this podcast. And frankly, it'll be more rewarding than listening to this podcast as well. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. It's almost 2020, so I almost, guess I guess we got to do something about that. We do. the uh, The Athletic is having an all decade blitz where we look at some of the best players, your all decade team, the best moments, um, what you really took out of this. These last 10 years of basketball for your your Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but it has been an eventful decade for this franchise. There have been one or two things that have gone on, and we could have taken this. So we, we basically did two lists here, and Mike is doing a third. But two lists between us, one where you sort of did a, a more straightforward all-decade team, the best players that this franchise has put out on the basketball court. And I sort of went another way where you looked at some of you basically the rebuild. And I looked at five players who sort of used that opportunity to create careers for themselves in the NBA who may not have otherwise had that. The criteria I used for those five players specifically was that they were undrafted players. And then five players who sort of used the unique situation around the Sixers rebuild to almost become cult heroes in a city that really should have tuned this franchise out, but they uh, were able to make an imprint during that time. So I guess we'll start off with your list. It's a little more straightforward. Uh, probably one that might, might invoke a little bit more of a debate. So why don't you go through your starting lineup for the franchise's all-decade team and who you're bringing off the bench. So uh, to kind of peel the, the curtain back, and show how I did this, I typed in basketball reference who had the most win shares this decade for uh, for the Sixers. There were nine players at the top. I, I looked at the entire list and I used those nine players. So it was it was pretty straightforward. I wish right now we could pause and just ask the audience to go guess who they think would be the leader in win shares. For the decade without looking it up, because I guarantee you it will not be who you expect it to be. Who would you have guessed? I would have guessed Joe, even though it's it's a, a pretty short run. It's not like there's been a lot of consistency among your best players through this decade anyway. And Joe is the best player. I would have guessed Joe. I he, would be wrong. He wasn't even in the top two? Nope. Nope. Number ben one? Ben Simmons eked him out 18.8 to 18.1. Very close between the Sixers' two stars, which makes... 
you know, makes sense. Um, Ben has played actually in a couple more games than Joe. Both of them missed obviously a lot of time. And if, if Ben would get that one season back and Joe would get those two seasons back, they would be in the lead. But they are not. It is instead, who is it? It's our old friend Thaddeus Young. Good old Thad. Um, really shocking. And again, he's played, Winchester is, is an accumulative stat. He's played 300 games to 172 for Simmons and 168 for Joe. So that clearly takes a, um, you know, plays a big role in that. But that was a good player for a long time. And he sort of had the misfortune there of coming up under first Eddie Jordan and then Doug Collins. You wonder what he might have been if he was a a little further along in his career and, and playing for better coaches who could have maybe developed him a little more, encouraged him out beyond the, what what was Collins' phrase for at the yard? Outside of the yard and into the three-point range earlier in his career where maybe he could have become a more consistent shooter. But that was a good player and a, and a good guy and, a, and someone good to have around there during that time period. for sure. In related news, basketball has changed quite a bit over the past <laughs> yeah. five years where Doug Collins was talking about yards and, and fences when trying to figure out how to use his best offensive players. <laughs> Whew. Yeah, it's we we've seen a lot of stuff this decade. There was the there was the Doug Collins teams at the beginning of the decade. Actually, the the Eddie Jordan team. Oh God! At the beginning of the decade, easily the worst coach in franchise history. Well, I'll, I'll, I, I'll, I'll, he was the first coach I ever interviewed uh, when I started covering this team and and really the sport. He was sort of my introduction to NBA basketball, and I'll tell you what, man, I thought I thought this sport, this this league, was pulling you know, blind over us. I'm like, they, they, these guys can't all be this average. Like I was, I was decidedly not blown away by Eddie Jordan's basketball knowledge. Um, and I was very disappointed when I first started covering the team and, uh, what a dark time. Yep. What a dark. And time. then, and then there were the Doug years where they were competitive and had no ceiling above a seven seed or, yep. just, I don't know if they got to a six seed, but yeah, they they were not. And he had very, Doug the GM who tried to give Kwame Brown four years. That that was arguably as bad as of a year as the Eddie Jordan year. That yeah, that year before Hinky got here was just dire. They had nothing in the cupboard, and Nick Young. Oh my God, that team was awful. And then we were given the process for three years, which you know, as as a lot of people know, that's where we got started for the most part. And people started to get more interested, even though the team really sucked. And, and we have a couple players on this team. I guess let, let, let's get into the team. So my starting lineup, point guard, Ben Simmons. Are you sure? There is a, a, a member of the media who will insist that TJ McConnell is the Sixers' best point guard, or was the Sixers' best point guard last year. Are you sure you're going to go with Ben and not TJ? I'm going to go with Ben. All yeah. Right. All right. But with him making a three... It, it, his lack of shooting would matter less, I think, if you <laughs> if you pack uh, if you played him not with T.J. McConnell, but the guy we have at shooting guard, Drew Holiday, and and that was a a pretty easy choice. Another Doug Collins era guy, Andre Iguodala. He is the small forward. I put Thad at power forward, although you you slightly disagree. You can tell me about the disagreement. I I didn't completely put this team together as. A basketball team like he got the nod because he was here longer than some of the other guys, and he was number one in win shares, which I thought was was notable. Center easiest one to do, 
Joel Embiid. No Sammy the, D, huh? No, no, no Sammy D. And then our bench is it's it's a good bench. Lou Williams, the uh, I'll never forget the Lou for one, first being developed here. Uh, he was, you know, I, I don't think I really appreciated Lou enough here because he was the guy who was given the ball at the end of the games when Doug Collins had the most conservative offense in NBA history, and he he would have his ups and downs in those moments, but. You look back at his numbers in Philly, he really was starting to build what has been an excellent career. Our uh, our first bench big, he's the GM of the team right now. <laughs> Speaking of having seen stuff, but, uh, you know, EB, he certainly... underrated, I think, as a sixer. Well, I, I think the there's prob- the expectations. Yeah, the problem was he signed the, the Philly Max contract for, what was it, five years, $80 million? That was the Sounds max right. contract. The, yeah. God, it's going to be the mid-level so- sooner rather than later. <laughs> yes. uh, but well, and then I mean that was the same summer that Iguodala got the the contract too, uh, and that was very heavily scrutinized as well. And the Iguodala contract, he was probably underpaid for the vast majority of that, probably all of it, um, but did not fit what the the city wanted in their franchise player at the time. And, and while those teams, again, they did they didn't have much of a ceiling. Those two guys were the anchor of a few defenses that finished in the top seven. EB was an awesome defensive player. That elbow jumper was a sign of the times, but it was money. <laughs> he, uh, I, I think we can say this. He's privately joked that he, he, if he played today, he would push that shot out to the uh, to the four point line. But back then, that that elbow jumper was, you know, it, it was good. I think he could credibly play the the Al Horford role for this yep. type of team. Bench wing, Robert Covington. And uh, yeah, you know, if there's anybody who's, if if Embiid is the embodiment of the process, I think Cov is certainly the rebuild's greatest success story. He, you know, you said that, that you might put him in at, at power forward yeah. on this team. And I, I think, yeah, if you're building the current team, I, I also think there's somewhat of a bias on your part because he's a better player than that right now. But Yeah, uh, and I, well, so I think there's a lot of really interesting ways to look at this team. Uh, you know, for a, a service award, I think Thad deserves it. But if you were going to how would the team function on the court, that's where I would go with, with Connington, I think. Especially if you're talking about a lineup that includes Ben Simmons. And it like it does, you know, I think you need a lot of shooting. And, and Iguodala, too. Like, I think another real just, not knockdown shooter, but a high-volume shooter that the defense has to respect would be... Uh, would be more more beneficial than that, which is a perf- I, which is a perfect segue to our last guy, JJ Redick. Yeah, yeah. You ninth would, man. You would really need him. You would really need him. He's the ninth this, man. This team would have a lot of the same struggles that the current Sixers team has in terms of space. They have a few more ball handlers, and and Drew and Iguodala in that starting lineup would be really important. Not to mention Lou off the bench. All right, so not a lot of the same struggles, but shooting would be a struggle, and you would need. You would need JJ. Yeah, give him fifteen minutes a game, all with Embiid, and yeah, don't don't overextend him, and and that's your team. I, I wonder when the other athletic writers come up with the the team of the decade for for their teams. Where this one would rank? Yeah, I think it yeah. would be slightly above average. I don't know; it's pretty good. It's it's interesting. I feel like there's a lot. Like I I, I made a Sammy D reference, and I looked it up. 
I didn't realize he actually left in the 2009-2010 season. So he was only on the franchise for a couple of months there in this decade. So I think my perspective of exactly who would qualify for a lot of these teams would might be off a little bit. My yeah. memory is not what it used to be. Well, an increased player movement too yeah. will probably make some some teams. Well, I mean, it's, it's like I was going back to, how do you really rate this team? And, and that's why Thad maybe deserves that spot in the starting lineup because if you want to just go on sheer talent or or best player, you know, how they were at the time in the league, like Jimmy Butler has to be on that team. But he was here for a cup of coffee. Like, do you yeah. really reward that? I did not. Um, so I think a lot of, of writers might go in a different direction as well. But uh, yeah, it would be it, like, certainly, again, when you start off with Joe and Ben, you throw in some of just elite role players like Cove and Iguodala, and Iguodala being in a class by himself in that regard. And Lou. Th- throw in an elite six man who's really still, who's become better since he left Philadelphia and is, is still an elite six man. And Lou and someone like Drew who has that two-way potential, that would be a, a strong team. Yeah. You know, I still think in a league that's so driven by perimeter shot creation and pick and roll play and, and, and ball handlers and guards, they're still a little bit lacking. But that would be a, a dynamic team to watch for sure. I think those early 2010 teams, their legacy, although they didn't do a ton in Philly, those guys aged really well when they left here. Think about it. Drew is still a star at this point. Now he's he's the youngest of the bunch. Lou is still an elite role player. Thad, how much money did Thad sign for this year? Did he get yeah. a sixty million dollar contract? He got a good contract. Yep, and deservedly so because he does just just little things that help a team win. Not the Bulls because he signed with them. But. Well, and he's not. I don't think he's playing as much as a he would have expected, and b you would expect for a guy who who signed of that contract. I don't entirely know what they're doing in Chicago, but yes, he is a a good person to have in that clubhouse for sure. Even the guys who were frustrating on that team are still kicking. Evan Turner. I guess I guess Hawes is not is not playing anymore. No, but. didn't he have a workout this fall? I think he had a workout. There yeah. was a, a rumor at one point that the Six were going to work him out, and they didn't. Thankfully, yeah. But so that's the team. I think it's uh, it's a pretty good mix uh, of the older players and and the newer players, and and also a representation of how much weird basketball we have seen over over the past decade. Eddie Jordan as a coach, obviously. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I of the nine players, I don't think there's any. I like I said, I might switch the starting lineup up, but I don't think there is any that I would that I would change. Um, that's a that's a good point. Like, so so many of those players have gotten better since they left. Lou and Drew in particular. And I think not to. Eh, we don't need to. Like, if you're listening to this and saying the Sixers should have kept Drew Holiday. Just remember, if they do that, they don't have Joel Embiid. They don't. They don't lose enough games to get get the guy that you are hoping leads you to a a title. Do you um, Do you remember when we had that breakfast with Hinky at, at, a, at yep. a diner somewhere? I, I what's the Penrose Diner? I think that's yes. where it was in South South Philly. He, I remember him saying at the time, he was like, "I really like Drew Holiday. He's obviously a really good player and an even better person." You know, I think the world of him in that way, but we need to kickstart this thing, and we just didn't have enough to support him. So, so we we had to make a move and you know get Nerlens Noel and that that future pick in the draft, and 
Yeah, that, that kickstarted the the process. I had to uh, lose those games. You had to lose them. And <laughs> I, I I mean that in all seriousness. Like they needed a player of Joel Embiid's caliber. They have two really good ones, and we'll see what they do from there on out. So I took it a little bit of a different way, focusing in on those three years during the Sixers rebuild where they had, hold on, I have the number right in front of me. They went through a total of 53 players over a three-year span, started 35 players during that three-year span. By contrast, the San Antonio Spurs had 29 players to the Sixers 53. So there's a lot of a lot of new faces that came through the what was at the time the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, a place I got a little too familiar with and a place that was quite frankly embarrassing for an NBA team. I liked it because it was it was close to where I lived at yeah, the time. Yeah, that's true. It but, sucked. It was yeah. ho- horrible for me to get to and it was just a, a disaster of an NBA gym. Remember the Monopoly money we had to use because Yes, for parking. Yes. Because it, you know, it's it's a real school. They, they they didn't have ample parking, so you had to park in their their garage where you you either have to have a pass or you pay. And so then our that, our media workroom was a a second floor workspace where college students would be playing, um, you know, foosball, and it was just a, sometimes Sixers coaches too. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's funny, a bunch of those guys are still with the team. Connor Johnson coaches the the G League team, Tyler Lashbrook, guys like that. Yeah, I I remember that very well. Uh, yeah, they've they've come a long way. And honestly, think about that with how many player development coaches they have now. I think you know Zach Lowe had it in his article today, but I think they have eighteen guys dedicated to to player development. It, compared to where they were at the beginning of this decade. Just, just in terms of the infrastructure, the the facilities, the the coaching staff, the the training methods, all that stuff. I mean, I don't think many teams have gone further in uh, in terms of what they're working with. I know the whole NBA has has wisened up. I'm sure a bunch of new facilities have opened up in, in that time, but still, the Sixers were one of the worst organizations in in terms of their resources, and now I would say they're one of they they had a very low starting point for sure. So, like I said, I, I I went through and I took five players who sort of used that opportunity to establish themselves as NBA players, were maybe without a team that was so disinterested in winning they wouldn't have had that chance. And again, I mostly focus on players who were undrafted free agents. Like, yeah, Nerlens Noel is still in the league. He doesn't. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, and then five who use that opportunity sort of you know, become ingrained in the Philadelphia basketball culture and landscape. And obviously in that category, we have to give a shout out to the rights for Ricky Sanchez. I don't want their army of sheep to come at us if we don't mention that. So we'll get that out of the way right there. But for the five players who use the opportunity to uh, establish themselves, obviously Covington, you had TJ McConnell, and then a couple more interesting guys, Dwayne Dedman, Tim Frazier, and Jakar Sampson. I guess we'll just go through each one and and sort of our thoughts. You know, I think the most striking thing for with Cov to me, you know, he came in. I'll, I'll never forget. I was up in New York for that game that he sort of had his coming out party. When first of all, it was like, oh my god, that's what shooting is. And this was you remember with that pro- early process teams, 
they loaded up on athletes who couldn't shoot, hoping they could develop one or two of them beyond what you would expect their development curve. So you had a lot of guys like Jeremy Grant, eventually KJ McDaniels, Tony Roten, Michael Carter Williams, guys who were athletes who, if they became shooters and if they developed that skill set, could end up being decent. And I think in Jeremy Grant's case, you kind of had proof that that was possible, even though they sort of gave up on him before he fully got there. But then you brought in someone like Cove who could just shoot the lights out of the ball. And it was like, first of all, oh my God, this gets so much easier. Like when you just get a tiny bit of space from one guy, it man, it's easier to run an offense. But then when you look at it, and by the time he left, by the time you, you traded him for essentially as a, the primary piece for Jimmy Butler, which just sounds ridiculous when you say it. And especially when you think back to where he was when he came to the franchise. But the fact that when he left, he, he was known for his defense. And one of the league's real best perimeter defenders. And his offense was sort of what frustrated you. It really shows the kind of development he had on that side of the court. Yeah, still is one of the league's best perimeter defenders. I think of in the coming years, you know, I, I don't think it's going to happen in Minnesota. But I think he's going to get traded to somebody and play. Obviously not an Iguodala type of role. You, you can't land on the... You can't, you can't get traded necessarily to the, the best team in NBA history. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not gonna, that's not going to happen to him. But I think he's going to play meaningful minutes for a, a playoff contender for a few years. And people are going to kind of know him as a playoff guy. Uh, and yeah, I agree with you. He was, you know, Brett always talks about how when they first got him, he was just this guy who would jack threes, which, like you said, was a nice change of pace on those teams. But he wasn't a very well-rounded player. No. And then by the end... He, uh, you know, first team all defense. What what a success story he was, and just honestly, uh, he he was somebody who I, I wasn't around a ton of these guys. A, a few of them, I was there for the ten win season, but some some of the earlier guys, he was somebody who obviously stuck around for a few years after the the losing, and and frankly contributed to the the res, the team's resurgence. Just just a great guy, and and somebody who I. Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, talking with and his love of snakes and and all of that stuff. He was uh, an amazing success story. A quote from Brett here from December 2014. My challenge is always to him is take this incredible gift you've got. And now I'm going to help you guard. I'm going to scrutinize you and we're going to pay attention here. We know you can shoot, but can you parlay that to the other side of the ball and contribute? And the bar there was contribute. And uh, and they got a lot more than that out of him. You know, thinking... A lot of times you'll hear the process boil down to, well, they lost games and got high draft picks. And here you took a guy who they signed through, out of what, at, at the time was a D-League. They signed for the veterans minimum. And he became the focal point of a trade for all-star Jimmy Butler. who all, Jimmy Butler right now is probably playing like a top 10 player in the league. And they were able to build a trade package around him based off the fact they were able to find and develop and then eventually sign, which that point you got to give some credit to the Colangelo regime and getting him on that contract, which was hugely beneficial. But the fact that you were able to get him and him become a, a center point for a Jimmy Butler trade, it was, I mean, it, it was one of the different avenues they used to acquire stars outside of just losing. And the, the other avenue was through trades. You know, the way I always phrase it is they could have won 55 games the year of the Markel Fultz draft. And because of the Nick Scous, Nick Stauskas trade, from the previous year or from two years ago 
with the pick swaps, they still would have had a third pick in the draft and they still would have had that Lakers pick to trade up the number one. So they could have gotten the number one pick in the draft, even with uh, winning 55 games and heading the playoffs. That was an avenue of adding a star talent as well. It didn't necessarily work out the way anyone was hoping for, but it was, it was available to them. All right. So moving on and we probably won't spend as much time on everyone because that would be a way too long podcast. TJ McConnell. Uh, the one moment I'll never forget TJ, it was, he came into that camp that year and he was in a dogfight with Scotty Wilbekin for the last <laughs> spot, uh, which is funny to think about now. Scotty, I think is playing, um, actually I forget which he might've been playing for FS. He, I, I think you're right. He's playing on a pretty prominent team over in Europe and playing a pretty big role, but TJ was locked in a dogfight with him and he, I mean, I'll, when they signed him, I'll never forget. He was playing on a summer league team. I'm like, oh, that's Chilil Okafor is sort of like ball caddy. And that's sort of what I expected TJ McConnell's role. But then you saw him play in preseason and it was just, there's an intensity level to him that, that is, is, is different. And it really was his calling card. But even so, like when he came, I remember it was the day before cuts or the day of cuts, the last day where you had to trim your roster from 20 to 15. And I'll never forget each player would go into the coach's office and then come out and we as media would be standing, you know, probably 50 feet away, um, basically around center court. And this was at the far side in an office and the face TJ had when he came out of that coach's office, like bright red, huge smile. And like, as a player like that, you don't want to really celebrate because there are, I'll go back to like major league. You know, when you open up your locker and you don't have that red tag, you don't want to celebrate because somebody else's career might be ending right down the hallway. You don't want to be too forceful about celebrating, but TJ couldn't hold it back. Like you could just see that the, the, this was it seemingly the best moment of his life. And he walked over to us at the media, shook all of our hands, thanked all of us. And just the he was on cloud nine. And clearly we had nothing to do. Like, quite frankly, I doubt I even wrote about TJ McConnell at the time we were very focused on whether or not Jaleel Okafor and Nerlens Noel could play together, which maybe looking back on it, we should have been focused on TJ McConnell. Should have been but 100% we TJ like, coverage. <laughs> yeah. We, we just happened to be the people closest to TJ at the time that he had. Like I said, it was probably the best moment of his life. And it was something that was very relatable. It was something that I don't think I've ever seen an NBA player really look like before. Um, it, it was very humanizing in the fact that it was just, it was, it was the best moment of his life. Yeah, I, I think one of the ways you can pay pay tribute to TJ is that despite the fact that he was not a good fit for this team when it got good, he stuck around for four years. And, yeah. and that isn't to say he wasn't an NBA caliber backup point guard because no, I believe he was. a really bad fit. Yeah. Just, just a bad fit. He needed to play with guys who were scorers and shooters. And you know the Sixers had some shooting, but obviously with a with a post up big and another point guard who just refused to shoot, he he wasn't the best fit in the world. And I think uh, if you go back to that training camp when I was writing about the Wilbekin TJ battle, I think there were some other point guards involved who are not major names. I was writing for Philly Voice at the time. I'm pretty sure I put TJ last on a depth chart of <laughs> six, maybe, uh, which which goes to show how much I knew. We, uh, yeah, we saw him grow up. We saw him uh, 
grow out his hair, get married. He was uh got denied at uh, Xfinity Live. Xfinity Live. It was uh it was a lot of fun and he was there and you know, I think after last year when he wasn't getting minutes in the playoffs, I think rightfully so. It it was a good time to to part ways, but yeah, yeah he made a uh you know, to come in as a guy who didn't even make the combine and also really doesn't have a ton of physical gifts. He's he's still very quick and and very strong, but for to not be that big of a guy with you know crazy hops or anything like that, and frankly to not be a good shooter and to have that type of impact on the program was very impressive. Yeah, good story, good guy, but he's in a better spot right now. With the both both of those two, I, the two biggest success stories, I, I think. Hinky always talked about you were you were also drafting a person, and, and and that's such a tough part of the pre-draft process is understanding who they are as people. Well, you know they they went through a lot of guys, and they, I, I think you could argue there were some swings and misses on that front. But two of the guys who who turned out and and punched above their their pre-draft weight for sure were also great people. Next one might be the biggest surprise of the list for me. Dwayne Dedman, he was only here for a 10-day, maybe maybe two 10-days, I forget. What, what Exactly, yeah. What kind of contract did he sign this summer? Oh, he, a- signed a, he signed a good one. Hold on, I have it not too far from here. He signed a, oh, this is perfect podcast, a three-year, $40 million contract. <laughs> the guy was just floating Sacramento. around here on a 10-day. Yep. Well, and then he went to, what, he went to the Spurs, I think. He went to... Orlando, and had a couple of really good years then with Atlanta uh, to where he became a real marketable commodity uh, as a guy who could not only protect the rim, but he shot he shot 38% from three-point range uh, last year and thir- 36% the previous year. A guy who came in shooting 50s and 60- 60s from the free throw line really, really developed that aspect of his game. And he struggled a little bit now in Sacramento. Uh, you know, that is a um, interesting spot for a big man to go to, but he is a guy who has established himself not now a 30 year old. He was not entirely young when he got here and he's now been a, a few years removed from that, but a complete unknown. And you'd love to kill them for the one that got away, but like he was Dwayne fucking Dedman. I had no idea who he was. I had no idea. He didn't show anything in the 11 games he played with the Sixers that would indicate he was going to make this jump. Uh, but certainly a guy who has improved by leaps and bounds and made himself into a, you know, what the NBA needs now in, in their big men. But just yeah. a huge, how, huge stunner. Yeah, how how would they know, too, when they were trying to develop all these big guys, a couple of whom Deadman turned out to be better than? But yeah, I don't really care about him. He wasn't here that long. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was, I do remember seeing like, hey, he's got some energy defensively, but that was about the only real takeaway and, I had at the and time. And also they're down here. by 20, so. <laughs> right. Right. That was uh that was the 2013-14 season. So not a not a ton of high quality basketball. Tim Frazier. Yes. This was one of the Shake ones. Shake his where, hand and throw him in the game. The, the quote I used in the article, as we've historically shown with the people that have come into this program, we are fearless, fearless of shaking their hand and about ten minutes later putting them in the game. Frazier, I think I think this was a game where MCW and Tony Roten were both injured. And I think his Sixers debut, he came out and logged like twenty five minutes. And a guy who they almost literally signed off the street came in and uh, and played a major role right away. 
And I think he only ended up spending... Was he? A, he was another ten day guy, I think, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes I get him and Larry Drews. There were so many point guards. There were so up. many of those freaking small point guards that I'll never remember. Um, he played six games with the Sixers in the twenty fourteen fifteen season. First game. Oh, I'm sorry, I undersold it. Thirty five minutes in his. And what was his NBA debut with the Sixers? That's what I mean. They were signing guys to ten days and having them log over thirty minutes per game. <laughs> and then saying good, and then saying goodbye to them. Yep. Uh, the only reason I had heard of Tim Frazier before that point was he went to Penn State. Uh, that was the only reason I had heard of him. Five points, eleven assists, two steals in thirty-five minutes in his NBA debut. Obviously, went in and had a had a really good year with New Orleans a couple of years ago. Established himself sort of as a a legitimate backup point guard, still bouncing around in the NBA. Um, now with uh, with Detroit, nothing to write home about. This wasn't a Robert Covington or even a Dwayne Dedman success story, but the fact that, like I said, they signed him off the street and uh, and they boom, played him thirty five minutes, minutes, minutes a game yep. against Boston. Oh my god, I kind of remember that. And then two weeks later, he was gone. Like it never happened. Uh, that was the story of that era of Sixers basketball, and really with the point guard spot. And quite frankly, that was a a point of contention. With Brett Brown at times, I, I think he wanted a little more stability there, especially after MCW was traded. If but, we're going to uh, lose, let's have a guy who can dribble the ball. Like, let's, let's at least do that. And I think that's a, that's a good segue to the next guy, because I remember he played point guard. Point in guard, a game in yeah. Point Jakar Sampson. <laughs> um, that was, again, a quote that I used from Brett about Jakar. He was a college four-man that played and started games as an NBA point guard. The evolution of him playing all over the place and bringing a spirit to our group will be missed. This was a, um, I think spirit is the exact word I would have guessed that uh, that Brett would have used to to describe Jakar. Second greatest basketball player in St. Vincent, St. Mary history. <laughs> he, uh, the, the delta between those two is is pretty steep, though. Yeah, they're pretty close. I don't know. The, uh, <laughs> I, the one thing I remember about Jakar was his laugh. There, yeah. there was a jumbotron segment in between, you know, timeouts or or something like that, and I just remember it, it involved somebody blowing out birthday candles, and I don't know why Jakar. I, I think somebody blew out birthday candles, and they went. I, I think the, and I'm telling this story very poorly, but I think somebody got hit in the face with uh, frosting or something like that, and Jakar thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And uh, I'll always remember that he he definitely played with energy and and the fact that he is he was starting for the Pacers this year wasn't he yeah for a while he started like six or seven games with the Pacers Pacers yep. have a winning record by the way <laughs> playing T J McConnell and Jakar Sampson yeah yeah that's that's great I mean he he seemed like a good dude but again he was not he was not long for the team once uh, once they started to try to win games no I think he. Who did he might have missed the 15, for? 16 season. What was that? How long was he here for? He was 14, 15, and 15, 16. Okay. He was traded, or he was let go in the 15, 16 season. Um, they needed to make room for uh, Joel, Joel Anthony, who never never played a game, obviously, but they got a second-round pick back with him, I believe, and they needed to create a roster spot. Kept Elton Brand over Jakar Sampson. At the, on the roster at that time. They knew he was going to be running things in a few years. So. <laughs> yeah. 
well, brought back as a, was that the year he was brought back as a babysitter? I forget. No, he was brought back again the following season for training camp, right? I think it was two years after that. It was 2016-17 when he was brought back. Ah, they, they, these all jumble together. Um, Jakar was a guy who I think improved in all facets of the game, but not enough to really be a consistent player. Like, he's improved a lot, but just he doesn't have, outside of defense and athleticism, anything that was really improved enough where you would say, oh, he's good at that. Yeah. I'll always remember bit. the game he had to bring the ball up against the Boston Celtics so, <laughs> yeah. in the Boston Garden. I mean, it was impossible for him to get the ball over half court. <laughs> Uh, let's see, where are we going to from there? Uh, that was it. That was a five. Uh, I put an honorable mention for Elton Brand, who played 17 games for Sixers, including one start in the 2015-16 season and has transitioned into being the team's general manager. What a, what a run. What a run. All right. A- anybody else you would put in there? Just guys who sort of made a name. I don't think so. I mean. Look, they did lose all those games for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Some of those guys started a depressing number of games. Some of these guys coming up, too. Uh, almost wish we had saved more, because these guys are more, a little bit more interesting. Cult heroes, Henry Sims. He, Henry Sims gets on this list for two reasons. How many games did he start? Oh, my God, a lot. Uh, way too many. He was acquired, I believe, in the um, in the Spencer Hawes trade. And sort of became the team's... Oh, I'm pulling it up now. Starting center for a, a pretty, like a, he started 57 games for the Sixers <laughs> over a year and a half run with the team, which is truly staggering. Uh, he played 27 minutes a night after being acquired at the trade deadline in 2014. Averaged 11.8.7 rebounds and 1.9 assists. So Sims gets on this for two. First of all, he was a, starter and a key player for the Sixers and then was pretty much out of the league. He had a cup of coffee with the Nets and that was it. He became a cult hero because of he is Lickface. If you see that in people's bios or listening to that mediocre podcast, they say it all the time. He is the guy who Lickface refers to. But also he was just, there were some incredible quotes about Henry over the years. Um, from Brett Brown saying that there is a grumpiness to him that he respects to they designed a, a game winning three point attempt from Henry. That was just one of the, the highlights of that season. They were playing against Oklahoma city and in the game, they really shouldn't have been in, um, but they tried to run a late three for Henry Sims of all people, uh, which was, was fun. I remember Brett Brown saying he wanted to hug him and have him over for dinner just because Henry Sims talked about how much he liked playing defense. And then there was, of course, the rap by uh, Hollis Thompson when Henry Sims was running for Student Association Vice President. He was running at Georgetown. And Hollis Thompson talked about how he was in a suit looking Obama-ish. He was trying to get them wireless coverage so you could follow them on Twitter from the can. Just one of the, the <laughs> great things to come out of the uh, the process was these two guys who became fixtures of an NBA team making a rap about a student government um, position. If uh, I, I have included the, that um, that rap in my article, so go check that out. Henry Sims also hated fun. Comcast. 
too. In 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 the wrong era for sure. Like this was a guy who couldn't shoot, had no real perimeter skills, decent passer, and just couldn't move his feet to defend out there. Um, he might have had an NBA career if he came out 15 years early. Maybe I don't know. He still would have been borderline, but he would have had a better chance 15 years earlier. But was certainly in the wrong era. Not the greatest athlete in the world. No, no, he wasn't. Fun guy though. Hollis Thompson. Never forget Brett saying Hollis Thompson is our version of a veteran. Uh, not because <laughs> Hollis Thompson was old or even necessarily particularly great or seasoned, but because Hollis had just been there for a long time. Remember when Hollis got let go? There was a funeral type atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he shot a guy that's 40% always... for three at one point, right? Yeah. No, his first two years, he was 40% from three. The problem is that's pretty much all he did. Putting the ball on the floor was an adventure. Wasn't as good of a defender as you hoped for. And quite frankly, the Sixers wanted him to shoot more. And he was a little bit hesitant with that trigger. And when your real reason to be on the team is to shoot, uh, that's a little bit of a problem. He had the the Zaire Smith gift for gab, too. Yes. Not not the best talker in the world. Uh, Not the good guy. Honest guy, earnest guy, was not going to give you all that much to work with as a reporter. Tony Roten. Another guy who became, first of all, coined the process, or trust the process. Always live in, 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 in the hearts of Sixers fans for that. Played a whole hell of a lot of minutes and used a hell of a lot of possessions on some really bad Sixers teams. Really the ultimate tank player. A guy who was a first-round draft pick, actually, at one point, by the Memphis Grizzlies. Had incredible athleticism. Like, one of the most stunning athletes I've ever watched in person. And I don't even really, like, there's very little hyperbole in that statement. Brett Brown, at one point, compared his wow factor to a mini LeBron James when he was playing downhill. (laughs) And is that absurd? Yes, of course it is. That's pretty absurd. But Tony, he really was an elite, like top 1% of even NBA players athlete. Like that was never his problem. But anything involving shooting or decision making, just a complete train wreck. And a guy who he became like a lot of people really enjoyed watching Tony Roten play. I I was not one of them. I was not one of them. He was like, uh, this is a very specific sports movie reference. But in, uh, in one of the Mighty Ducks movies, Luis Mendoza, he can't stop. He's like the fastest guy on the <laughs> ice, but he can't stop. That's what Tony Roten was, except he never learned how to stop. And yeah, I mean, I just remember some of those floaters would break the backboard. It felt yeah. like it was just, but you know what? They, they had to play somebody at point guard. And I, I can always say that Tony Roten was playing his ass off. So he, so credit to him for hard. that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. No right hand at all. Not even a little bit. Which um, isn't always a problem with with some guys. Like Thad didn't Ma- have a right hand either. Yeah, with lefties. Ma- Man- Manu Ginobili always got to that left hand, but just because of the poor shooting and and decision-making and passing, it was, it was a problem for him. Some of those passes, man. If you were in the first 20 rows, you better <laughs> be paying attention. Don't be looking down at your phone. It looked the, like... MLB, when they're putting in those nets, they, they, need to put they might have wanted up. to put a net in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Furkan Aldemir, next up on the list. Why? I, I mean, he, he gave us a practice of the Furkan puns. Yeah. Um, never would have guessed that the Sixers, you know, in terms of Furkins in NBA history, Sixers two, rest of the NBA zero. 
he that's about all I got to say positive about him. He's set good screens. <laughs> well, do you remember? I forget if it was Hollinger or Pelton. I think it was one of those ESPN guys who had a model that used European play and, and translated it to the NBA. I think it was Pelton. And he said that he thought Aldemir translated well. We watched him play whenever they brought him over in the middle of that year. I watched him play for about five minutes and was like, yeah, he can't play. It's, uh, <laughs> he was just so slow. Yeah. Um, like, like cats, too. I couldn't. He did like cats. Uh, he came over in the middle of the season. I think uh, his his Turkish team, Galatasaray, had some financial issues and yep. got him out of his contract. So it, there was a, a lot of excitement over his arrival, but. Like you said, he stepped foot on the court, and I was like, "Woo!" <laughs> a, he's slow, and B, he can't jump, and not a defender, not a shooter, not a passer, not a anything but a screen setter and a rebounder, and that's just not. It was, I mean, when you say we were like, "Ooh," <laughs> at that point, Tony Roten was not was not eliciting that reaction. It was like, "Ah, okay." Like it, I mean, it, if you compared it to the the current teams, it was. It was pretty jarring. He was not very good, unfortunately. Last up, I had Casper Ware. Just another nameless, faceless point guard the Sixers brought in. Actually has has made a really good career out of himself overseas. A lot of lot in um, Australia. He came over a couple of years back for uh, Melbourne United. Now he's playing with Sydney. And has become a really important player with them. But another sort of random NBA point guard that Sixers signed to a couple of 10-day contracts during the constant constant point guard churn. Um, and really, he only made the list because pointing out that point guard churn felt like it was, uh, it was, it was noteworthy. He led them to a summer league title. And uh, yeah, I, you know what? Uh, compared to some of these other guys, like, yeah, he did not quite have the size and athleticism to play in the NBA, but that guy he was can, a walking bucket. Yeah. he Honestly, he had some really good moments in Summer League, which shouldn't be what you write home about during an era of Sixers basketball, but it was the process years. Uh, no, he could shoot. He was too short. Yeah. And didn't have much going to the rim because of that. But he could he could certainly pull up off the dribble, and he was fun to watch in that setting, and, and, and has become fun to watch in overseas play. Honorable mention to Drew Gordon, the brother of Aaron Gordon, like the six or like Philadelphia sports have done a couple of times in the past. Uh, I remember Giambi when I was I was much younger, getting the wrong brother, uh, and I I liked Aaron Gordon coming out of the draft a lot. But Drew Gordon spent a cup of coffee here with the Sixers back in 2014. I think he played nine games. So wanted to shout him out just because he was the wrong brother. Can I can I get one shout out too? Yep, Brandon Davies. Yes. Just they let him shoot threes. I mean, he made Ben Simmons look like I don't know Steve Kerr. <laughs> he he had a couple where he he missed by what you would measure in feet, not in inches, for sure. And, and it was the early part of the process. But to his credit, he was another one of those guys who just played his ass off. <laughs> and unfortunately, he was just not good enough to play in the NBA. But I, he was, in my opinion, he was one of the more memorably bad. Yes. There are so many different places we could go with this. Like good players who never played a game for the Sixers, like Kirilenko. There are a couple of guys who you could throw. Pierre Jackson. Yep. 
Yep, drafted by the Sixers. Um, went through some some injury, tough injury luck. Um, but there were def- a couple of different places we could go with this. It was a lot of players came through, a lot of personalities came through. Not a whole lot of good basketball came through, but it eventually netted Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, and um, Jimmy Butler. So some some good things did happen. Uh, but yeah. That was the list. And this ended up being a lot longer than I expected it to be. And quite frankly, we could have probably spent more on some of these guys. But I think that is a good place to cut it off. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on once again. And we will talk to you soon. See you, man.